The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Orson Welles was shooting the other side of the wind. And Frank Marshall, who was working on the picture, comes over to Orson and me. We're sitting over somewhere, and he says, uh, Orson, the crew is getting a little hungry. You know, they've been here since 8 a.m., and it's now 2.30. Well, I'm not hungry, he said. Uh, they've been here for a long time. All right, let the crew go to eat if they're hungry. If they have to eat, let the crew go eat. And I said, I'm not hungry either. They're fine. Peter and I are going to stay here while the crew goes to lunch. So he sent the crew off. And then about 10 minutes later, Orson turns to me, are you hungry? <laughs> because I'm absolutely starving. <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich is telling the filmmaker Ryan Johnson about a time in 1974 when he was on the set of the Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. Principal photography for the film ran from around 1970 until 1976, but the final feature wasn't released until 2018 when Frank Marshall stepped in after decades of production and legal challenges. So we go into the kitchen that was on the top of the refrigerator, a huge industrial-sized bag of Fritos. <laughs> so Orson picks up the bag, rips off the top of it, and dumps most of it onto the kitchen table. Sits down, takes a huge handful, shoves it in his mouth, and starts chewing. And Orson says, you know, you don't gain weight if nobody sees you eating. <laughs> I'm going to go on that diet starting this week. Yeah. <laughs> That's Ryan Johnson, the acclaimed director and producer. He's perhaps best known for the Knives Out films, but his diverse filmography includes movies like Brick, Looper, and Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Ryan has received multiple Academy Award nominations. He also works in television, having directed three award-winning episodes of Breaking Bad, and he's the creator of Poker Face, starring Natasha Lyonne. He's also married to film critic and author Karina Longworth, who hosts the podcast You Must Remember This, about forgotten Hollywood stories. But Ryan is here with Peter and I to talk about one of the most iconic figures in Hollywood history, Orson Welles. I'm Louise Stratton, and this is One Handshake Away, from Orson Welles to Ryan Johnson. Welcome to another episode of One Handshake Away. For this week, we have the brilliant director of Knives Out, Ryan Johnson, who will be discussing with Louise Stratton and me, the work and the personality of Orson Welles. Ryan, why did you choose Orson Welles? Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me here. This is incredibly cool. It's great to have you. Oh, I'm so happy. 
Well, I picked Orson Welles because he's one of my all-time favorite directors. And he's somebody whose work I really discovered kind of in film school, right when I was being exposed to Fellini and a lot of directors that ended up becoming kind of lifetime obsessions for me. And Welles was right there at the start. And he's one of those directors that has, as I've discovered his work and kind of come back to it over the years, he's just been kind of a bottomless resource of inspiration. Not only his work, but also his his life and sort of the mythology of the man. And so I was also, I mean, to have the opportunity to sit with you guys and Peter to sit with you. And I, I have to warn you, I'll probably be asking you most of the questions. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to sit across the table from Peter Bogdanovich and opine myself about Orson Welles. <laughs> hello, 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 hello. I don't trust machines at all. Oh, Christ. All right, let's get it over with. <laughs> Peter recorded about 11 conversations with Orson Welles and became something of an expert and a protege. Orson Welles was an actor, writer, director, and producer for radio, theater, and film. He directed and starred in Citizen Kane, universally recognized as one of the greatest films of all time. And before that, he caused a national stir with his innovative and controversial War of the Worlds radio broadcast. He was gregarious, complicated, energetic, and highly creative. I only learned my name was George when I was about 10 years old. That, uh, you know, I was called Orson all my life. I wish I'd known that I had George. Imagine what a name, George Orson Welles. All of it. The whole name, that's the greatest name ever known. Yeah, it's great. I should have been George but Orson I Welles. I would have been emperor of the universe with a name like that. <laughs> You know? But I never trust people with three names. Ah, you. but you either trust me or I'd throw you in jail with a name like that. Peter and Orson Welles developed a close friendship over the years. Peter called him O.W. They were almost like family. Peter even gave his younger daughter the middle name, Wells. It was a relationship that, in a sense, started well before they ever met. 1960. I didn't meet him then, but in 1960, I got a call from Richard Griffith, who was the uh, curator, main curator of the film library at the Museum of Modern Art. He called me out of the blue and he said, we're thinking of doing a retrospective of Orson Welles' work here. And we wondered if you'd like to write the accompanying monograph. I said, why me, Dick? Usually you do this. I was 19 or 20 at this moment. He said, I don't happen to like his work. <laughs> wow. Not a fan. Oh, my God. And I had written a program note for a theater on Orson Welles' Othello. I said it was the greatest movie based on Shakespeare ever made. And that was not the collective wisdom at that time, you know, with Laurence Olivier. So I did. I wrote a monograph. I tried to meet Orson. Couldn't. He was in Europe somewhere shooting. So I couldn't even talk to him. So I wrote this thing. It was all praise galore. I mean, you know, I, I, he was deified in front of your very eyes. And uh, I sent two or three copies to him in Europe. Never knew if he got it or anything. <laughs> now, seven years after the retrospective, which was very popular, I get a call. Hello, this is Orson Welles. Is Peter Bogdanovich there? Speaking. Wow. <laughs> what were you doing in your life at that point? I'd made just finished targets. And Orson saw it somewhere and liked these. I saw your film. You could have been bullshitting, frankly. <laughs> the first time I met him, I gave him a copy of my John Ford book, which had just recently been published. And you know he loves John Ford, so... As he was saying goodbye, he's leaping through the, the book, and he says, too bad you're such a big director now. 
And you can't do a little book like this about me. And I said, I'd love to do a little book like this about you. That's how it started. That's sweet. Which film of Orson's did you see first, Citizen Kane? Yeah, Kane was the first one that I saw, like most people, I think. And I saw it for the first time in film school when I was, you know, watching and discovering a lot of the directors that would end up becoming my favorites. And Kane just like hit me like a, like a freight train on every level. Citizen Kane was Orson Welles' feature film debut, which he co-wrote, produced, directed, and starred in at the age of 25. Released in 1941, the film tells the story of Charles Foster Kane, a newspaper publisher and industrial magnate. Kane's character is sort of a composite of notable and powerful real-life men of the era, who has an especially close resemblance to the media baron William Randolph Hearst. Here's Wells playing Kane in the movie. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. I was 16 and had loved movies, went to a lot of movies. But it wasn't until I saw Kane at the age of 16 that I, oh, it's a, there's a director. <laughs> He's a star and the director. Hmm, interesting. So what was it that keyed in your head? Is it just because of the deliberateness of the craftsmanship of it? And the, yeah, I think, yeah. That, I think you, you nailed it. Yeah. It was just like it was so clearly directed. Yeah. To this day, it's the movie that when I'm about to sit down and start storyboarding, I'll rewatch that film. The way that Wells describes doing himself with Stagecoach and with John Ford's films when he sat down to make Kane, I'll do that with Kane just because it works on so many levels. But even just the most basic level of, of shot construction and shot composition and blocking within a shot. If you want to learn how to block actors in a shot, create depth within your frame in a way that's dynamic and that serves the dramatic purpose of a scene, you can't do better than Kane. You can't get much better than Orson Welles, that's true. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you gain from that that you've carried throughout your career? The folk singer Dave Van Ronk talks about the song uh, St. James Infirmary and talks about how he's performed it through his entire career. And he, as he says, he's never found the bottom of it. He's never found, it's a bottomless pit of inspiration for him. And there are a few movies and a few directors for me that are like that and Kane is one of them. And it's one of the movies that I can come back to both on a craft level, but also it's one of those movies who, you know, the meaning of it does change as you age and it, it, it grows with you. And, um, and it becomes increasingly fascinating to me that Wells was, what, 27 when he was playing Kane? 20, 25. Yeah, 25 when he was playing Kane as like an older man. It becomes even more magical to me, the fact that it's as powerful as it is. He's so brilliant in those old man stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was part of his, the magic trick of, of movies, I guess, the, the delight that he had in the artifice and how the, and that's, I guess, ultimately what for me, like I keep coming back to any director that can hide an artifice to the point where it becomes not a shield against direct emotional connection, but becomes direct emotional connection. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It's a very complicated statement, but you're, yeah. I think you're right. 
There was a good deal of controversy fairly recently about who actually wrote Citizen Kane. I was going to ask you, yeah. And the argument was that Herbert Mankiewicz actually wrote the bulk of it. The truth was otherwise. I um, interviewed a lot of people when I was doing a piece about Orson for Esquire, and uh, his secretary said, if Orson didn't write any of it, what was I typing all that time? <laughs> That's a good point. One of the associate producers, he said, oh, yeah, Orson wrote a lot of it. He kept rewriting all through the shooting. Mm. So anyway, uh, here's what he said about that issue. An idea of mine, which was to tell, which was basically the idea of a Russian model later on, which is to tell the same story several times, differently, see exactly the same scene happening. Uh, different, point of, different points of view. Vestiges of left at Kane of that, but it was the original gimmick on which, out of which Kane grew. Then a man, we searched for a man who should be the fellow and Hearst and so on. The uh, big contribution of Mankiewicz was the Rosebud gimmick, which was his. Not mine. I, I, I'm still not too keen about it, but I think it's a, it manages to work effectively. But it's a, got a slight, only uneasy relationship to dollar book psychoanalysis for me. But it works, so I shouldn't be so aggrieved about it. It's interesting. You can tell from the moment he uses the word gimmick where he's going. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I guess ultimately, like not knowing much beyond just the surface level of what I've heard and what I've read about it, to me, the whole thing of what the question of who wrote Cain or who was the essential author of it, to me, it's kind of kicking in an open door, as the Italians say. It's because <laughs> ultimately what's on the screen is Norris and Wells' film. And like we've talked about, the direction of it, it's not a script performed, it's a motion picture. And it's ultimately the script is one layer of that, obviously. And but uh, when you watch the film itself, it's a it's it's an Orson Welles film. There's no <laughs> all over it. Oh my God! It's it's baked in to the point where it's almost seems ridiculous to say that sentence. Well, Pauline Kael, you know the critic, wrote a whole book basically saying that Orson didn't write it. Herman Mankiewicz wrote it. It's the original hot take. Exactly. <laughs> and the whole reason for her doing that is because she hates the auteur theory, the idea that the director, writer, whatever is the auteur which is a very pretentious way of saying author. <laughs> but anyway, she hated that, yeah. the O2 theory, because it was correct. So she attacked Orson, because Orson was thought to be, you know, the, the prime example of the independent director-producer. If you could take him down as an auteur, <laughs> then everybody could fall, you see. <laughs> well, it's an interesting, I mean, the auteur, and I know that that was such a hot debate, especially at that point, you know. And to me, it's interesting because I, tend to kind of walk a sort of a middle ground with it, but, I, but not really. I mean, I feel like I, I do genuinely believe that for better or for worse, a movie ends up being an expression of the director in a weird way, in a way that doesn't actually make sense to me, in a way where it's this massive machine with all these talented people contributing in all these different ways. And somehow at the end of the day, you can still like I said, for better and for worse sometimes, draw a straight line between what the picture feels like and looks like and is and the person who was the director on it in most cases. But I don't think that undercuts the contributions of all the people who, I mean, or, or somehow implies that the director did it all. I think much to the contrary. Regardless of who can take credit for what, 
Citizen Kane's impact was indelible. The film made waves even before its release. The similarities between the character of Charles Foster Kane and William Randolph Hearst didn't go unnoticed, even to Hearst himself. Hearst was told by his associates, like Luella Parsons and so on, that the movie was based on him, that it was about Hearst, which it really wasn't. But he thought it was, and so he did everything he could to destroy it, basically. Yeah, they tried, you know, they, I, I told you all the things they did, tried to frame me with. Communist things? Worse than that, I was in lecturing. I, forgot, I think it was Pittsburgh, I've forgotten, some town like that. I used to do a lot of lecturing, and a detective came up to me. I was having supper afterwards with some friends, and he said, don't go back to your hotel. He says, I'm, I'm from police headquarters. I won't give you my name. I said, why not? He says, I'm just giving you advice. I said, what are you talking about? He says, they've got a 14-year-old girl in the closet, two cameramen waiting for you to come in. Earth people. And of course, I would have gone to jail. There would have been no way out of it. I never went back to the hotel. I just waited till the train in the morning. I've often thought what would have what happened to the cameraman and the girl waiting all night for me to arrive. Yeah. But that wasn't Hearst. That was a hatchet man from that Hearst paper who thought he would advance himself by doing it. I can't really blame Hearst. It's, you know, hatchet men. Thank God he got the heads up on that. That's a situation. That's crazy. I don't crazy. think I had heard that. That is wow. absolutely believable wow. and bonkers. <laughs> it's just awful, the thought of it. It makes yeah. me sick. What do you make of a notion that it wasn't based on Hearst? Well, he told me that at length. You know, yeah. I mean, he said it was based on a number of press lords, including Hearst. Sure. And McCormick was a big deal, the guy right. in Chicago right. who built the Chicago Opera House, supposedly, for his girlfriend. Right. So that was, that's all McCormick. Nothing to do with Hearst. But he doesn't think Hearst actually ever saw the movie. What do you think? I don't know. Yeah. I think he might have seen it. I bet he snuck a, <laughs> snuck a print in yeah. after hours. They did manage to blacklist the picture because it could play theaters, but everybody's afraid to play because he wouldn't let any advertising in the newspapers, in the Hearst papers. Yeah. No newspapers, no reviews, no, you know, no ads, nothing. Really, it's tragic. And if he could have done anything at all to bolster the impression that Kane in the movie is a projection of him. It's to pull this power move of trying to use his media reach to control the narrative. Exactly. It's been more than 80 years since the release of Citizen Kane, but it's still a must-watch for directors like Ryan. It's a testament to the brilliance of Orson Welles. In many ways, Citizen Kane is to cinema what the Mona Lisa is to painting or Michelangelo's David is to sculpture. It's a magnum opus. Earlier, Ryan mentioned that he goes back to Kane every time he starts developing a new project. Orson Welles, directing for the first time on Citizen Kane, actually did the same thing with the movie Stagecoach, directed by John Ford. I always do think about the story of him sitting down to effectively study Stagecoach to learn how to make movies. What do you see in terms of the influence? Because there's so much, obviously, there's so much difference between it. What do you see as what Orson drew from him? Well, let's hear what he said first. I studied Stagecoach, not because I think it's one of his best great pictures, but because technically I wanted to just sit and ask questions about a movie. I didn't want, I couldn't go on a set because I would, Everybody would stop and be polite and introduce me to everybody. I couldn't watch anything. Mm -hmm. So I never went on a set until that first day I went to direct. I never visited one. 
but I ran Stagecoach every night for a month with different people every night. After dinner, I went and ran Stagecoach with somebody else from the studio and sat and asked questions. How is this done? Why is it done? And, you know. That's what Orson did. He ran it 40 times in one month. The only entry-level position on a film set is the director. <laughs> That's true. That's really true. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you can always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammie Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Had you been a big movie fan before you came out here? Had you always wanted to make films? Never wanted to make films, but a true kind of movie fan with no uh, interest in it as an art form. Just went to the movies? Just loved to go to the movies without taking them very seriously or ever considering myself in it. You didn't really want to make pictures? Not all that, but I thought it was something to do. Yeah, I was happy to do it, but it wasn't uh, no burning desire to. I, I fell in love with it when I got here. and started. By the time I'd been here... Even a few weeks, I was just mad to get started. I, I found out I liked it very much out here. You liked the people or the, just the whole town? It was kind of fun. Did you always know? I know you started out writing about film, did you, but you always had the aspiration to make movies. When did you first? Citizen Kane. Yeah. 16. I wanted to be an actor first, and then I decided to direct. Right. About that time period, yeah. You should have acted more. I mean, you're really good with whatever you do, but you're... I often wish I had acted more. Yeah. You turned down parts because Orson wanted you to wait. Oh, yeah. I turned down a couple of parts because Orson thought I was so good in The Other Side of the Wind. Of course, the picture wasn't released in his lifetime, so yeah. I would have waited a long time. The story Peter told about being on set with Wells at the start of the episode was from the filming of The Other Side of the Wind which Peter starred in and executive produced. The Other Side of the Wind was Wells' final film, his exit from the world of cinema. But his entrance came in a roundabout way. Before Citizen Kane, or any of his other blockbuster films, Wells orchestrated what would become a historic radio event, his famous War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, 
this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, yet as mortal as his own. That's part of the opening monologue from the Halloween episode of the Mercury Theater on the Air radio drama series, directed by Orson Welles. It was an adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel of the same name. After the opening monologue, the broadcast transitioned to a seemingly ordinary news bulletin. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states. After the weather report came a live musical performance, common on radio at the time. But the performance is soon interrupted by an urgent announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the... After the report, the live performance returns, but it keeps getting interrupted as more information surfaces. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The severity of the reports escalate until it becomes apparent how dire the fictional situation truly is. That's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and the thing must be hollow. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Did you ever hear the show? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. It's pretty good. It's really good. It's incredible how effective that cut to silence is still today. Even when you know the game and know what's coming, it still gives you chills. Yeah. And he holds it. I always picture him in the studio. He held it, yeah. Holding that hand up. Yeah. He held the silence for a long time. That's what scares the shit out of everybody. Yeah. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, a uh, hundred yards away, it's, it's 50 feet. The broadcast became legendary, in large part because of how shocking and believable it was. According to stories from the time, the CBS switchboard was flooded with callers, and the station was swarmed by police officers following the broadcast. When Wells came out of a late-night rehearsal, he found a headline displayed in Times Square reading, Orson Welles Causes Panic. Well, did you know it would have that kind of effect? Only the size was a surprise. My idea was to send a lot of the lunatic fringe out. I just didn't know how widespread the fringe was. You mean how little, yeah. how it wasn't a fringe? Yeah, because I got the idea from a BBC show that had gone on the year before when a Catholic priest told how some communists had seized London. And a lot of people in London believed it. And I thought that'd be fun to do on a big scale. Let's have it from the outer space. That was how I got the idea. 
didn't know that. Yeah. But you claimed afterward to be very innocent about it. Of course I did. They were suing me for $20 million, you know. Of course I claimed. Mm -hmm. The only thing is that they didn't have records of it at the time, and I came out at the end and said, this was Halloween Eve, and this was our little way of soaping your window and saying boo. In other words, admitting malice. Mm. But luckily, uh, they didn't catch that. But I always thought that uh, it was something that, that the reverberations of the War of the World broadcast, the fact that a lot of people disliked you for what you had made fools of them. I don't think anybody did. Really? No. Well, wasn't there a hue and cry? Or yes. were they sheepish about it? Most of the hue and cry was made by the newspapers because it was a big chance to attack radio, which was taking the advertising away from them. Oh. Most people just thought it was funny. There were, of course, a lot of people called up in tears and a few suicides and all that. But basically, people thought it was uh, funny. No, I didn't suffer at all. <laughs> Wicked sense of humor, eh? When Pearl Harbor was announced, a lot of people thought it was Orson. Oh, no. True story that when Pearl Harbor was announced, nobody believed it because... True. I'm dead right, yeah. Tricky since I had a patriotic broadcast that morning and was interrupted in the middle of it. I was on the full network reading from Walt Whitman about how beautiful America was. Then they said, Pearl Harbor's attack, and doesn't that sound like me trying to do it again? They interrupted the show to say it had been attacked Sunday night. Roosevelt sent me a wire about it. Saying? Something like, you know, and then crying wolf and all, you know, that kind of thing. Not the same day, he was too busy, but it was yes. about 10 days later. <laughs> <laughs> Roosevelt, my God. He was very friendly with Roosevelt. He toured with him during the campaign. Didn't you do a play where you turned off the lights in the theater, even the yeah. exit lights? <laughs> I did that. And, uh, we did a production of Ten Little Indians. Uh -huh. And uh, at one point, the lights go out on stage. And I said to the ushers, I said, turn the exit lights off at that point. And they did. And it was scary. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was black. <laughs> and the audience started to feel very kind of edgy. And then suddenly there was a gunshot on stage. Bang! And it was like a one-frame cut. <laughs> Just that fast. That's and amazing. the audience screamed. Oh, that's fantastic. People started to get up. We turned the lights on. <laughs> Can't do that on Broadway. You get in trouble. One of the most effective experiences I've ever had in a theater was I was watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I think it's extraordinary. I think it's yeah. absolutely, yeah, a masterpiece. But it's got, you know, the whole thing is about creating like the inside like, of a psyche. And so it's very mm. disorienting anyway. And about halfway through the movie, there's a portion where one of these disorienting transitions is happening. And suddenly, all the lights in the theater go completely out. A red light flashes in my face. And a gentle female voice starts saying, please find the exit, please. And there was just a, obviously what was happening was a fire alarm, but there was a split second where I was still in the dream space oh of the movie gosh. and this was a part of it. And I just thought for the, a split second, my God, this is <laughs> like, they've taken this to the next level. This oh, wow. <laughs> Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations, Coast to Coast, has brought you the War of the Worlds, featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. War of the Worlds was genre-bending and medium-breaking, and it's ultimately what set Orson Welles on the path to become a film director. The War of the Worlds broadcast was 
your first piece of really bad luck, wasn't it? No, it was good luck. In retrospect, though, I mean. Great good luck. Was it? Never would have gone to movies without it. Oh, really? Never would have got a commercial account without it. We were a sustaining show. Yeah. No, no sponsor. We got a sponsor the next week. The sponsor had turned us down two weeks before because we attended to too much violence and sensationalism. Picked us up the week after the War of the Worlds. Was that Campbell's? Campbell's soup. As sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. From the success of War of the Worlds, Orson broke into the commercial world, which led him into a sponsorship by Campbell's Soup. And it went from being the Mercury Theater on the air to the Campbell Playhouse. It's incredible the stories about when he was doing radio in New York and him taking ambulances to get yes, to get, get from Harlem down to Midtown. Yeah, he must have had a lot of fun. Oh my God, I can only imagine. Yeah. Now we're back to look. We're, we're back on radio right now. What is this? This is this podcast. Is what's I took an ambulance to get here. <laughs> <laughs> Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Can you sum up the effect that Orson had on you? I mean, we talked a little bit about Kane and about that, but that just scratches the surface because my real, I'd say my real love affair with him became when I, it started when I saw F for Fake. Oh, and that's interesting. That just aligns, you know, it, it makes a circle out of the Venn diagram of just the, the things that I'm into in life and what he was making that movie about. And but also just kind of the joyful playfulness of playing with the form and... We didn't talk about the the trial, which I think is visually on par with Kane. I think it's an extraordinary visual film. The Trial, Wells' film from 1962, is based on the Franz Kafka novel of the same name. It tells the story of Joseph, played by Anthony Perkins, an ordinary man who finds out he's been charged with a crime. But in spite of his best efforts, nobody will tell him what crime he's been charged with. Every interaction Joseph has with police investigators, judges, and even his own attorney is confusing and unsettling. I managed to keep calm. I asked them very simply why I was arrested. And what was the answer of your self-styled inspector? Gentlemen, he answered in effect, nothing at all. He had arrested me. That was enough. Wells' adaptation of the trial received mixed reviews. A biography of Wells described the experience of watching the film as agonizing. But given the nature of Kafka's work, that may be fitting. Ignoring the criticism, Wells said, say what you like, but the trial is the best film I've ever made. But Peter disagreed. The first time I met him, 
So you know, there's only one film of yours I don't really like. Which one? <laughs> I said, The Trial. I don't either. <laughs> which was a complete lie, by the way. Yeah. That's yeah. what he said. Yeah. I made some kind of remark about the trial. Not terrible, just a crack one. I wish you'd stop saying that. Mm-hmm. And I said, I thought you didn't like it. He said, no, I just said that to please you. I like it very much. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And every time you denigrate it, you diminish my small treasure. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, shit, Orson, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right, let's go on. And from then on... He, referred, he said, like, for example, when we were in Paris, he said, they're running that picture you hate <laughs> on the left bank. You want to see it? I said, sure. And he said, you know, one of the reasons you didn't like the picture is you didn't realize what the humor with which it was made. <laughs> I said, really? So I sat next to him and they ran the picture on the left bank. And he kept laughing. And I, I, I did see what was funny to him and uh-huh. I sort of I got it. Yeah. Dark humor. Yeah. The audience didn't get it at all. Yeah. They didn't laugh and they didn't like it. Yeah. But he, he was laughing, so I understood it. I find and it extraordinarily Anthony funny. Perkins is it is amazing. very funny. Tony's brilliant. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. And it's a great movie. I just didn't get it the first way. couple of times. That's so funny, though, and the vulnerability of admitting that, you know, like the dragon with the one scale missing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he was very honest with me. The fact that you could even say that you didn't like it to him is interesting. Yeah. Well, I felt I could say anything to him at a certain point. Yeah. You broke through that barrier or whatever it was and yeah we really got along you know i spent quite a bit of time with orson over the years and uh the first time we recorded anything he said to me well, how are things in hollywood he said what's jack ford doing i said well, he's not working what's howard hawks doing I said, he's not working why not well they're sort of considered over the hill but orson got very upset about that emotional got angry and so i thought i'd play you some of what he said because it's it's it reverberates throughout the entire career and throughout show business, actually. Go ahead, play that, will you? The only thing that keeps people alive in their old age is power. And a king or a conductor or a director can go as long as there is no cancer or any other breakdown. Physical breakdown. Physical, but as long as you can physically do it, you can go on, and now with the new things in, in 10 or 15 years, you can go on to 120, I'm sure, conducting. Nothing will stop it. It's only the idea in people's minds that will stop it. But take power away from De Gaulle, or Churchill, or Tito, or Mao, or Ho, or any of these old men who are running the world yeah. in this world that belongs only to young people. <laughs> you know? yeah. And you'll see a, a, a you know, babbling, slippered pantaloons. You know, it's, there they are already with their best work ahead of them, I think, if they're any good. Really their best work. I believe that Ford today, given a script a little better than anything he's ever done, commanding more from him, would give us better pictures than he has ever made. Because it's only in your 20s and in your 70s and 80s that you do the greatest work. But, you know, the enemy of society is the middle class and the enemy of life is middle age. <laughs> what a great... Wow, movie. that is... Is that powerful? Uh, it really is, yeah. Yeah, especially, I mean, considering his his trajectory considering how young he was it's so easy to forget how young he was when he started yeah when he was so successful at the start he was so young yeah 
He lived to be about 70, mm-hmm. uh, but he wasn't great, in great shape at all. But you had huge success at a very young age. Yeah, I guess I did. didn't seem like it was that young. You know, you, you, I was in show business for a long time before I had a hit, and the first real hit I had was uh, the last picture show. How old were you when you made picture show? Young, I was 30, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It just touches me, or Orson touches me, he always did. Mm. He was a complicated guy. What a stupid remark that is. <laughs> no kidding, Peter. Orson <laughs> would call me on one, one of those. You know. uh, yeah. That's very brilliant, Peter. Just because so much of, just as a fan of, of Wells's, so much of his personality is, and his persona is of a performer and a fabulist and sort of, you know, this kind of grand, although bigger you watch- Bigger than life. Bigger than life. And I don't know, was there, having been close to him, is it, do you feel like a moment where like the curtain drops or do you feel that level of kind of- him maintaining sort of a, a, a mythos about himself? I saw him toward the end before he died, pretty low. He was very depressed. and We hadn't been getting along because I did St. Jack, and he wanted to do it, and he couldn't get the money. In the 1970s, Orson Welles and Peter Bogdanovich were looking to collaborate on a project, and Welles suggested an adaptation of the novel St. Jack by Paul Thoreau. But the rights to adapt the novel were owned by Playboy, which was an obstacle, until Playboy published an installment of their annual Sex and Cinema series. The article consisted of images of actresses who had performed nude in films over the last year, often published without consent. The most recent installment included images of Sybil Shepherd from The Last Picture Show. Sybil didn't agree to be featured in the article, so she chose to sue the magazine. At this point, Peter and Sybil were in a relationship which started on the set of Picture Show, In what was far from his best moment, Wells convinced Sybil to settle her lawsuit with Playboy in return for the rights to St. Jack. Peter claims that after the settlement, Wells stalled in writing the script. So Peter stepped in and took over the project. And that's what hurt the, killed the friendship for quite a while. Did you guys though reconnect after that? Well, yeah, I did see him once. He was very gloomy at that point. It was not too long before he died. And we talked on the phone a bit. Well, he was very warm to you when we went to that award ceremony. He was, yeah. Yeah. That was toward the end, yeah. We, we made up. It was difficult for him, you know? All that talent just sitting around. Yeah. Orson Welles' final film, The Other Side of the Wind, has come up a number of times in our conversation, and there's a good reason. Welles denied that the film was autobiographical, but it's hard to take him too seriously. The film has a complex, layered narrative involving Jake Hannaford, an aging but successful Hollywood director, played by John Huston. Hannaford's protege, Brooks Otterlake, now a successful director in his own right, is played by Peter. Near the conclusion of the film, and what would turn out to be the last night of Hannaford's life, Hannaford and Otterlake meet at a drive-in movie theater. Give up. Is that a suggestion? I gave up from the seventh grade. How about you? Hannaford is trying to get funding for his final film and realizes that the much younger Otterlake won't help him. At the drive-in theater, Hannaford and Otterlake share an emotional goodbye. Our revels now are ended. You bet your sweet cheeks. 
A while back, Peter told me an important detail about that scene, and I asked him to share it again when we spoke to Ryan. The goodbye scene between my character and Houston. Houston wasn't even there. Mm. Orson sat in the driver's seat, mm. and he said, play it to me. And then just before we rolled, he said, you know, it's us, you know. I'm saying goodbye to us. You know? Wow. Good piece of direction. <laughs> I mean, my God. It's um, us. Wow. That's all he said. Amazing. He was a great man, great director. Mm. Complicated relationship. Very. Mm. He loved me and didn't, you know. I was young. I was where he wished he was. Mm. I know how he feels now. <laughs> I'm older than he was then. Yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. I interviewed him for about 11 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On his deathbed, I'm afraid, in the hospital. Yeah. And the first time he was great, and then he started diminishing each time. But, uh, yeah. but he was a terribly nice. When he smiled, he suddenly was 25 years old. Yeah, amazing. It's strange seeing this in front of you who actually had that sort of relationship with him, but because Wells also, in a lot of ways, I don't know, makes me think of, of my father who passed away some years ago. And um, they had at least my kind of projection of, of Wells and kind of my mythologizing of him in my head. My father was kind of a bigger than bigger than life personality um, in ways that were both wonderful and also, you know, unhealthy and, and a strange mixture of those things. And so um, it's, as, as you said before, and as Wells would make fun of me for saying, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, yeah. But uh, Wells, both as a filmmaker and also his persona as a man are, are the things that had a very complicated place in my life. It's well put. Speaking of fathers, didn't your mother say something about Orson Welles regarding you and your father? Well, my mother thought that Orson was having an undue influence on me. <laughs> I don't like that Orson boy. Stay away from him. She was a little bit worried about that. Yeah. So she said to me at one point, he's not your father. He's not there to encourage you. He's not your father. Mm. I didn't think he was my father, but... I uh, wonder why Why would she say that to you? Because she was worried about that he was leading me down, leading me astray or something. You know? Can I ask you a question about meeting your heroes? You've done quite a lot of that in your life. <laughs> and, I did, yeah. And... I've had experienced kind of both sides of the experience of that, I think, in terms of having wonderful experiences and also it's it being complicated. And It was complicated. I wonder just in general, in terms of your experiences over your life of meeting your heroes and if it's maybe sometimes that meaning that your projection of them ends up getting undercut or popped in some ways, but there are other things that you appreciate more. I guess so. I mean, yeah. Orson was a pretty big deal. And I always loved him. And even though we had a falling out there for a while because of St. Jack, we ended up on a good note, you know. I said to him at the last phone conversation we had, about two weeks before he died, I said, gee, Orson, I feel like I've made so many mistakes. And he said, well, it does seem to be impossible to go through life without making a great many of them. <laughs> we both laughed. And, uh, that was it. Mm. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much, Good Peter. luck with Thank your you, new pictures. Thank, Thank you. you guys for having so me. Happy. It was a great pleasure. And that's it for now, folks. Next time, we're one handshake away 
from John Ford to Ken Burns. When it's a choice between the fact and the legend, print the legend. Do you agree with that? Oh, yes. Why? No, I think it's good for the country to have heroes to build up. John Ford is this master of storytelling, this epic engager with American history, or maybe not American history as much as American mythology. And I was drawn to that. One Handshake Away is narrated by me, Louise Stratton. Executive produced by Jenna Weiss Berman. Written and directed by Perry Kroll. Our story editors are Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Produced by me, Louise Stratton and Oren Siegel. Luke Moore, John Teague, and Charlie Morgan of Stack. And Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Perry Kroll, Andy Jaskowitz, and Ian Mont. Production support from Sean Cherry, Barry Finkel, Raj Makaja, Javier Cruces, Richard Shelsinga, Peter Tonget, and Kelsey Hayden. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Maura Curran, Leah Reese Dennis, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. One Handshake Away is an Odyssey original. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.